Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And Reverend Billy is here with us today. But before we introduce him, uh, I want to know what's going on with you in Canada, my uh, you friend. You know, it's, uh, we've basically not had a winter yeah. in the West Coast. Yeah. So, you know, the snow's up on the mountains, none in the city. It's been pretty, pretty chill around here, really. A couple of good windstorms. But other than that, uh, you know, enjoy it. We're still smug about being Canada. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> you know, we look around to our neighbors and go, wow, you guys are going kind of nuts. All right. I, I don't even want to talk about it. I, I appreciate that. I'm not going yeah. just to. Just so you know, we're still up here, still looking at you going, what the? It's not my fault. I, I didn't do it. <laughs> just so you know. Putting it out there. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I guess we should roll the crazy music for Better No Framework. I got a good one. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? In honor of Reverend Billy, if you go to 1618.pwop.me, because this is show 1618, can you believe it? Yeah, look at that. This is a Pinterest page, and uh, I guess you have to have an account to see this. I'm not sure, but I do have an account. I'm not a a Pinterest user, are you? No, no, but sometimes I get links like this where there's a collection of photos on Pinterest. So um, this is UX fails, so user experience fails. I love it. And some of these are just so, so ridiculous oh, man. that I thought I would share them with you and Billy. And Billy, we were just sort of commenting on some of our favorites here, <laughs> like a uh, sign for rooms 101 to 113 and then uh, 114 to 128 in a hotel. Right. And it's sign, arrow, and then on the next row, arrow, sign. Sign. So, so is you the really arrow don't know. above the rooms and below right. the rooms the arrow related to those rooms? Or is the arrow beside the rooms? Right. We, you don't know because it's separated into quadrants. So exactly. It's you not know, like, further down yeah. in that list, there's the same thing as an elevator button where there's an arrow pointing down at a button and to beside it is a button and an arrow yeah. pointing up at a button and beside <laughs> it is a button. It's just so bad. So, How so do you, if you do this? How have you done this? When you're feeling overwhelmed about the choices you've made in your user experience, <laughs> you just come here and you'll make yourself feel a whole lot better. <laughs> yeah, that's what the internet's for, to let you know you're not the weirdest. <laughs> you're, you're not the, the dumbest one in the room. <laughs> <laughs> oh, some of these are so good. Unbelievable. Billy, what's your favorite here? One of the things that, that stands out to me, there are a couple of examples in the top row here of these machines that issue tickets or passes of various kinds. Right. Yeah. They, they are consistently bad. And I mean bad all over the world. One of these has some kind of foreign language stuff on it. And then there's another one from America. And then we've all seen the thing that gives you tickets um, at, at MGM Grand for the monorail. It's bad. Yeah. And I've I was I've got pictures from a parking garage in Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh that was just atrocious. So there's something about that area that the engineers that are producing it or something, boy, they really don't get how to make stuff easy to use. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, and I hate to think that it's profitable when you get it wrong. Right. That if you make this super hard, then people don't buy tickets or they buy the wrong ticket. And so you get to find them. And so it's actually an income strategy. Like, I'm just going to try not to think like that. Uh, yeah, well, the the place in Pittsburgh had a full time employee there to explain how the machine worked to everybody that walked up to it. <laughs> Which now you're losing money. You're paying this yes. person. Like, all right, we, 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 we got to stop, him... guys. We got to stop because yeah. we could just do this <laughs> for be a the whole, whole show. show. <laughs> <laughs> and it, we got so much more to talk about, such oh, as this uh, is a good one, buddy. Nicely done. Such as people who are talking to us, Richard. <sighs> <laughs> oh, grabbed a comment off of Billy's last show, show 1504. Okay. I'm so enamored of this Pinterest page. <laughs> so that was 1504, which was oddly enough called UX Design Rants. I think that's what I named it. Uh, yeah. And it's uh, from December of 2017. So it was like a Christmas show, too. And as is typical of Billy's shows, I mean, just a ton of comments and lots that, that Billy interacted on. And right. let me show you an example, or rather read you an example. It's from Rob Blackmore. 
who said, slightly late to the party, but I wonder if there's any opportunity for Billy to expand upon his vision for a quick build-out UI solution for WPF, or perhaps to explore how the 80-20 of simple and hard requirements should be built out using the myriad of UI technologies that exist in the 2018 landscape. Mm. Of course, that's from a show right at the end of 2017. Mm. Now it's the beginning of 2019. And back then, Billy gave a quick summary where he said, this is a lot of stuff. And I'm hoping we're probably going to get into most of this in this show because this is what it's about. And we said the basic ideas of a, of a great UI solution for WPF is a shell framework to use as a starting point that provides basic navigation, good theming cosmetics, lots of standards built in, such as favorites, handling open items, dashboard. And most importantly, it would be easy enough for the typical developer to figure out how to use within a day. Right. Which is what sort of takes Prism off the list. You know, yeah. Prism is well, just so and, and I have to, to, to interject here and say that yeah. I just did one of these for a company in New York. And I turned the shell over to them. And 24 hours later, they had their stuff plugged into it. Wow. Yeah. Wow, so indeed. Clearly know how to do that. I, I, I do want to finish this. Then I'm sure this is just more. This could be a whole show. A generator that would scan data schema, present entities, and allow easy design of views and data templates with those entities. Think of it as a front-end generator to the entity framework designer, and the end result would be REST services, data classes, and XAML laid out in fields with all the bindings in place. Which is very light switch-ish, which you mentioned, but mm -hmm. was always limited and, of course, is kind of dead these days because of politics rather than the product. A composition-based designer to help users put pieces together. It would be a total replacement for the current drag-and-drop designer, which is very close to useless. A set of framework components and controls for data validation, data visualization, and other things used in almost every business app that are hard for a beginning or intermediate dev to do and time-consuming even for the advanced developer. And simplicity, 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 simplicity. <laughs> I hear bomber in my head right now. <laughs> bomber is hovering in my brain. And yeah. then there's a couple of comments after this that says, please, this is something Microsoft used to do. And Rob came back and say, is there any chance that maybe we could talk about this on a show? So, uh, yeah, no, no, we're not going to talk about it no, at all. Not, <laughs> definitely. It's not something hey, we Rob, can do. Uh, uh, you've anchored this show, and we really appreciate your great comment and the others you've made over the years. Happy to send you a copy of the Music to Code By. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there, and if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet and make sure it has no handle and says pull. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Hey, I had a tweet go out of control the other day. Oh, yeah? I found, it, uh, I found this little obscure art thing about software architecture as different kinds of pasta dishes. So it sort of went from spaghetti code to <laughs> lasagna layering to now we live in the microservice land of ravioli. Wow. And I I put through the graphic up there on a Friday because I usually do silly tweets on Friday. And 360 or 375,000 impressions later, like, uh, you oh never my. know what's going to take off on Twitter. But apparently, software architecture is pasta, is a thing. Yeah. Anything we can map knowledge to that enhances the abstraction for us, I think, is a good thing. Oh, and in the comment from the artist, and I included his contact info in the in the link and stuff. Uh, the comment from the artist was, "I guess the next architecture is pizza. <laughs> pizza architecture." <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Where do we start, Billy? Do we even? We don't need to introduce this man. He's more famous than we are. That's right. He's more famous than .NET Rocks. The, some of the best shows ever. I, I, I would. I would have to push back on that a little bit. I don't think I'm more famous than you guys, but yeah, I, it, it is glad it, it's good to be in a point in my career now where I, I don't have to introduce myself very often. And that yeah. is nice. Yep. You're the UI guy. Yeah. Well, and, and you have been on this theme since long before it was hip. Yep. Yes, that's true. And I've always thought that people should be paying more attention, and I'm finally starting to see some signs that it's breaking through. Yeah, um, I did. I did a UX workshop in Las Vegas in the spring. A hundred and sixty people there. Nice. Yeah. I did an. I did another one in the fall that was a hundred and eighty people. 
Wow. And I'm, I was more accustomed to getting 40 or 50 for these workshops. And I mm-hmm. think a lot of the conference people just felt like th- there just wasn't enough interest among developers. But you pack 180 people into a, a one-day workshop. That is, um, that's indicative, I think, of a trend that people are starting to finally, at mm. least some segment of the developer population is starting to finally cotton onto this idea. And there was an incident at the one in, in the, in the fall that was 180 people. There was a guy that came up to me and said, I went to your workshop about five years ago, back when you first started doing them at the conferences. And I took what I learned back to my company. This is a business owner. I want, I took it back and we really changed the way that we looked at developing software. And I said, well, how'd it work out? He said, well, I just sold my company to Xerox for like $40 million. Oh, so sad. And of course, <laughs> and of course, the first, the first thing out of my mouth is, well, you can cut a check for my share anytime <laughs> yeah. today. I'll be happy. Right. But no, I mean, that was, of course, that was, of course, being silly because I'm happy to see people do stuff like that. That sure. is just invigorating for me to, to see people take what, what I believe to be true, that you can change the way software development is done to emphasize the user in a way that has extremely high value. So I, I, I've, I'm seeing some uptake on that. I'm hoping that this course that I recently released on LinkedIn UX design for developers is going mm. to similarly have a fair amount of uptake. Nice. So tell us about that. This is in learning, right? This is LinkedIn's this is LinkedIn learning. Yeah. yeah. I just, it was just put out last week. And uh, for those who saw it the first day or two, there were a couple of technical glitches in it. So if you ran into some, some sync issues between the audio and the, and the, the, the images, don't go back. They fixed all that. So it was released last week and it's two hours long, and the basic idea was, see, LinkedIn Learning's philosophy here is that you really need to get things compressed down because they assume right. that the people that are using their stuff are very, very busy. Right. So you have to really pack a lot of value into a small amount of time. So this is the first time in at least six or seven years that I've really completely rethought how I present these concepts to people. You know what's interesting wrote, about that, Billy, is that the uh, plural site authors are paid sort of by the minute, right? Well, it's, they're paid by the by how minutes viewed. Yes. Yeah, minutes viewed. So, so basically, if you can stretch things out, it's in your best interest to do that monetarily. Whereas I'm, LinkedIn, uh, it sounds like from what you're saying, they're they're really focused on uh, being effective. They are very focused on saving people time, and I think that's really good, so, but it's a challenge. Everybody knows this. If you produce content of any kind, being concise and getting to the point in a way that is both understandable but is also as concise as you can make it, that's one of the toughest challenges in any kind of content generation. Yeah. So I spent several weeks doing that and producing new content. And I hope that it's going to work out. You never really know until people start seeing it and start reacting to it. But I, I hope that that I've I've come up with something that a developer can walk up to as the very first thing they see and at least walk away with an idea of why this stuff's important and how you would go about becoming more expert at it. And if you're not already a member of LinkedIn Learning, like you get a free month right off the bat. Make it, if yeah. you're just starting out, do UX for design for developers in your first free month. Oh, you bet. I would love that. Yeah. Okay. Um, if it helps people to understand, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about sort of the, the main themes because sure. when I do, when I do UX design and kind of a, a bigger two day or three day course or whatever, then I talk about lots of things in kind of a, a linear way that I think that you need to know it. But in a course like this, I really didn't have the ability to do that. So I started by talking about all things like, um, the fact that, that organizations don't value UX as much as they should, but here's why they should. There was a study put out uh, just as I was doing the course, in fact, from McKinsey that said that companies that emphasize design thinking had 56% higher returns wow. to, to shareholders wow. than companies that don't. And I know some of that comes from the fact that there are stable commodity-based companies that, that don't need to do as much design and innovation. But nevertheless, I think the average company in a rapidly changing economy, especially a company that depends upon software for a competitive advantage, they really need to have some design thinking to help them help them through through the changes that come. So um so that was uh that was one of the big topics. Another one was I, I spent a lot of time talking about cluttered screens. Hmm. Yep. 
because that's just a chronic problem and, and it's symptomatic of a bigger issue, but people just have, they're almost at a point of resignation. Well, I just have to have crowded screens. And there are many design principles that say you shouldn't, and there are ways around it. So I spent a fair amount of time there trying to get people to understand the value of, of doing something about crowded screens. Yeah. Maybe I'm oversimplifying um, here, but is this the developer's default, just give them every option? That It is. Well, I think probably a better way of describing it is the developer's default is to keep dragging stuff onto the screen until it's full. Especially in the old days, remember uh, Alan Cooper in the Visual Basic days was talking about user interface, and he and I actually used to have contests where we would try to find a more ridiculous UI screenshot and send it to each other by email. <laughs> yeah. And he won. He, he won. He, he sent me one that was like, there wasn't a millimeter of space that didn't have a button, a line, a square some sort of checkbox or something on it and it was and it was every color of the rainbow terrible you know what i need to do for this show is put a link to the spoofed up screen i have that's crowded okay and and when you first glance at it you think it's just a regular data entry screen if i say okay how many of you have a screen that's like this most of the crowd will raise their hand but when you start looking at it in detail you realize that it's complete and utter, utter gibberish <laughs> but because it's very crowded, you don't notice that at first. Right. You have to actually sort of drill in to realize that that screen is meaningless and nothing but gibberish. So I should put a link to that because I spent, I you know, I got on tear about this because I did one of those years ago for the Pluralsight course. And I wanted to do another one that was different and, and sort of reflected some evolved thinking. So I got on a tear one night and I spent three and a half hours crafting this gibberish screen <laughs> so <laughs> and i i don't know you get on these things and you realize oh i could make it even better if i did this so i did that for over three hours one night and and we should probably put a link to that yeah we should <laughs> yeah absolutely do you find that um the stuff that you teach in your classes that you find um web developers and mobile developers taking your courses i mean you you um you talk about general design principles but you are you know the what you like to code is usually native apps that's true and that and the crowded screen problem is worse in native apps but websites tend to have it too especially web pages that are for business applications they tend to cram too much stuff on there too um mobile apps are better about not doing that so the design principles for mobile and web and native are all pretty much the same yeah. but i find that the Majority of the class tends to be people that do business apps, and most of them do use native technologies. Mm -hmm. Windows Forms is still very, very popular, for example. And so the crowded screens issue comes up for them, and I tend to to, to emphasize that because that's a, that's a big value add for them. Um, the web guys, I really try to appeal to. They have some limitations in terms of the technology. They can't do some things. Mm -hmm. With state management and such that you can't, that you can, that economically do on the native side. But yeah, the principles are the same. And I, I, I've had web people say that they got a lot out of the course as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, is the answer to these crowded screens just to make more simpler screens? The answer to crowded screens is to understand what the user needs to do at a, at a sufficiently deep level that you can show them what they need to see at the point they need to see it. Right. So you have to think about the process. That's of right. Workflow. You, you, if you understand what they need to see, then see, I go through this with some of the design principles. People's cognitive and visual capabilities are simply not sufficient to grasp everything that's on crowded screens. They learn to kind of dart their eyes around to find the thing that they need right now. But if you give them exactly what they need at any point in their workflow, they don't have to filter that clutter out. That speeds them up. It makes them less stressful to do it. And it makes them less likely to uh, to have an error or to not notice something that's right. very important. So, so yeah, it's mostly it starts with understanding their job. And, and then you sort of switch to a mentality of I'm going to show them what they need at the time they need to see it, which is a much more dynamic UI perspective for design. Mm. The typical developer thinks of screens as being fairly static. I just dump stuff on them and they stay that way. You don't want to think about it that way. You want to think about how do I deliver what the user needs depending upon where they are. That takes extra work, but it's very much worth it. It really speeds people up and they like it a lot better. 
so I noticed when Bootstrap was very popular and became popular that these sort of screens with, you know, different, slightly discolored backgrounds that were just a little bit different and a lot of space in between these sections on a website, right? And you have just one statement in big fonts, a lot of space, and then you move down and you've got another statement and maybe you've got, you know, three um, three things to click on or look on, but but you're right. It's very much don't overwhelm the user, you know. Don't don't make them f- filter through a lot of junk on the screen and and have a flow like that. And I hope that that sort of thing is going to serve as examples because I think one of the problems right now is that the typical software development team has never really seen a complex business app done effectively with screens that are not crowded. Right. I mean, the number of examples in the entire Microsoft development ecosystem is just shockingly small. All they've ever seen is crowded screens where the development team just kept throwing stuff on there. They've never really seen, well, let's put it this way. If you've never seen an application that had great design and got away from crowded screens, why would you think it was even possible for a business app to be done that way? Yeah, good point. Do you normally think things are possible that you've never seen? Probably not. (laughs) You just don't think of it. And, and, and that's one of the reasons I fault Microsoft for not doing more, that they should be able to put examples of apps out there. They should be able to put reference apps out. They should highlight apps in the ecosystem that take advantage of these technologies yeah. at a level that most teams aren't doing it right now. I think that would be good for everybody. But I, 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 I'm. Look, I've assumed the role of crank about this. I've talked to so many people (laughs) in the Windows division about it, and they all kind of nod their heads. And I don't know whether they think it's a good idea or they're just nodding their heads to get rid of me. What do I need to do to make you stop talking, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good feedback, Billy. (laughs) (laughs) So do you remember the the tablet show? Remember that show? Remember that show, Richard? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, we made 130 of them. Yeah, right. Well, you know, just as Windows 9 came out, or Windows 8, I guess it was, right? Windows 8. It was Windows 8, yeah. Yeah. And Windows 8, of course, had that big start screen. That's kind of like the Windows 10 start screen, except it took up the whole page. And uh, I can remember you having very distinct thoughts about that, Billy. (laughs) Well, I use it as an example now in my course of how not to do UX design. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because everybody has reached the point where... There's no contention about whether or not it was bad design because ultimately if if the users don't like it and they refuse to use it, then it's bad design. Yeah. I, I, there just isn't any way around that. Right. right. And I knew a lot of these things from the very beginning because the Microsoft team really violated some of the most important and basic principles of design. So, yeah, I feel a little bit vindicated. I'm sorry that it turned out that way. I still think there are some improvements in Windows 10. I don't like the sharp edged blocks with the bright colors yeah. in, in the start menu. I don't think that's a good way to do it. And I could show some alternatives that I think are better. But in general, Windows 10 got back to, okay, what do our users really need? And and did a much better job than Windows 8. It, does, it did not surprise me to see Windows 8 crash and burn. So what about the Mac? I mean, the Mac has the Finder, which is just a screen full of icons, and you can search through them just like you can in Windows. It's not all that much better, except there's a little more space around the icons. I, I don't think that it's that much better, but it's it just is simpler enough. It ke- sort of keeps a lot of, of stuff at bay so that you can focus in on it. It's it's not bad. I, I'm not an expert Mac user, but I have used it sometimes. And when I used it, I didn't have any trouble getting around in it. I didn't tr- have any trouble accomplishing what I need to. I didn't have to go to Google to look something up. And I didn't get frustrated. I d- don't get to the point in the Mac where I f- and filled with rage because, because I can't figure out how to do something. And let me tell you, there are places in the Microsoft ecosystem where I do. Paint 3D is a horribly, horribly badly designed app. And now it becomes the default when you type paint. I know. And, yeah. And I just cringe at it. I can show you videos of absolutely horrible user experience that I've taken in Paint 3D. It's just really, really badly done. So I think in general, Apple doesn't ever really get to that level of fail. As, as some of the apps in Windows 10. I'm not saying that they're the absolute best design in the world, but as a company, they do reasonably well. They actually train their developers in design thinking. That's a corporate culture thing inside Apple. 
And given their general success over the years, I think that probably indicates that it's very valuable. They are, of course, on a little bit of a of a difficult path now because they haven't produced quite as much innovation in the post-jobs era, but they're still doing okay. And I, I, I think that the lessons that we could learn from Apple, most developers are probably not exposed enough to Apple to learn them, to be honest. Yeah. Well, and, and they're, you know, it's interesting how all these companies have kind of punted on design guidelines, certainly Microsoft, but you don't get a lot of explanation from Apple either about what they really want from an app and how they want things to look. Well, I think a lot of that is the the evolution of the technologies, especially the native technologies, means it's very hard to keep your your guidelines up to date. When you had file edit window help, very minimal sort of technology capabilities back in the 90s, it was relatively easy to come up with guidelines that optimize the constraints, right. that optimize use of, the, of, of that technology because yeah. of the constraints. Now, we don't really have any constraints. I mean, if I can sketch it. On paper, I can probably build it in WPF. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make well, it a we, good idea. Uh, you mean to to do custom design on things? Well, no, no. But it's just like, I, I got to think most people, when I think back to the Battleship Gray forms, like there was so many design decisions simply made for you because that's where the file goes and that's where the help goes and that's where the save goes. Like it, That's why people could find things. Yeah. Like, have we well, really I'm, gone away from that? Does that no longer make sense? Are people are not looking at consistent places for that? Well, in general, it doesn't have as much applicability as it used to for a couple of critical reasons. And one of them is the changing role of data in applications. Because back in that era, probably 70% of the screens of a typical application were to get data in. What we used to, what we call CRUD screens at the time. Right. Yeah. But nowadays Data comes from everywhere. We've got mm-hmm. sensors and we've got event logs and we've got everything. All this data feeds into the applications and even business applications. You don't enter data. In many cases, you get it from a partner or something. Mm. See, that wasn't really practical in the nineties, was it? But now we can just, you know, have some internet based service to go get that data. So right. now applications are managing huge amounts of data that they weren't before. Well, if you're going to consume data, number one, you don't, you don't need cr- so many CRUD screens. The typical application we produce is down to about 20% CRUD screens. Hmm. The standards of the day were optimized for those apps that had a lot of CRUD screens. How do you optimize an app for a world in which the data varies so much and the data visualization varies for every problem that you have? See, that data needs to be used. A lot of it isn't being used right now. And I talk mm-hmm. about this in the course about data visualization is one of the most important reasons to become somewhat proficient with, with UX design because we've got all that data and it's not being used. And I don't see a way to implement good data visualization in an app without going through some design. And I don't think you can do it prescriptively. I mean, you can for a subset of the data, but if you're really going to take advantage of most of the data out there, you really can't do that prescriptively. You have to do that by looking at all the ways that you could visualize data and understanding the problem and picking the ones that really apply. Right. And you're well known for doing um, visualizations that have to do with the business model. In other words, using instead of just using pies and bars, you 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 take some object that represents what those numbers mean and and uh, use that. Sure, like a fuel tank. But sometimes bars and gauges and pies are okay. It, it, it depends upon the circumstances. Mm-hmm. So it's not that you have to do everything custom, but you do have to at least choose from your palette of choices to, to visualize data in a way that makes sense to the user. That, I think, I think that alone is enough reason for developers to understand something about UX design. If the applications are changing so that the data becomes more and more important, and it sure looks to me like they are, then, and and you have to have design in order to to make that data accessible and consumable by the users, and you have to have design to do it, then to me, that's kind of part of the evolution of of the role of developer, that you're not just banging out CRUD screens anymore, and you're not just dropping data grids onto onto screens anymore you're actually thinking about how people see and use the data Mm. just to hang on a minute billy for this very important message hey carl here i just wanted to call out one of our patrons jonathan gallagher for pledging a hundred dollars a month thanks jonathan and thank you to all of our patrons who support this show every month 
And if you'd like to have your name called out on .NET Rocks, become a patron at patreon.netrocks.com and help us stay on the air. Thanks. And we're back with your Campbell Call Franklin. It's .NET Rocks. We're bringing back our friend Billy Hollis to talk a little bit more UX and his new course, the UX Design for Developers on LinkedIn Learning. And I think this data visualization part, I have this book that I love. I've had for many years, and it's like its 50th printing called How to Lie with Statistics. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think the government buys most of them. But, uh, <laughs> but I used it to shape the way we visualize data to make the right suggestions. I guess, you know, this idea that in Western culture, lines that go up and to the right mean good. Down and to the right mean bad. Mm-hmm. And you get that sort of visceral, when you show a visualization like that, they get a visceral reaction, and then they look at the data. But you've already set their thinking by that visualization. Mm-hmm. And you can do that with, with color choice and things like that as well. Sure. And shape choice. Sharp-edged objects, when you put it as part of the data visualization, create a sense of edginess. That's, that's where the word comes from. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually manipulate people's emotional reaction to data just by using different kinds of shapes. Smooth shapes are going to evoke a different reaction than sharp-edged shapes. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there's all kinds of things like that. But the, the key for me is that you use it for good and not for evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, you know, this was back in a time when I had a job doing data visualization for a company that was, they would take those reports to do negotiations, typically with media companies. So it's like, it, I, I got to the point where I was answering the phone saying, what lie would you like today? It's like, I need a report that shows that this newspaper's ads were not that effective. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> but for, for me, I, I, I recognize the possibilities of all that, but I approach it more from can we make the data intuitively consumable to look at? Right. So that if I'm talking about all the interactions that I've had with a particular customer, those interactions took place over a span of time. I would like, I would prefer for a user to see that data on some kind of a timeline. See, that's one of the examples in the course is here's that data in a grid and here's that data shown on a timeline. And on a timeline, you see clusters of things that are probably related because the visual system automatically assumes that things close together are related in some fashion. Mm, right. Whereas that's the way our brains are built. That's exactly the way our brains and visual system are built. So in a grid, we don't get that intuitive thing. We have to parse out, oh, this date is eight months later than this date. Therefore, those things aren't connected. But this date is seven days off, so it, they, they probably are connected. If you put that visually on a timeline, then that becomes intuitive and automatic. Now, you have interesting challenges from that. When things start to cluster, how do you make sure people can actually get to the part that they want? You use offsetting and you make it so that if you click on one, it comes to the foreground and things like that. So there are techniques to be learned to make that happen. I think the average developer doesn't really want to get into that kind of, 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 it's, it's pretty difficult to think through the problem unless you've seen examples. So to me, one of the big things about data visualization is to show examples and to, to inspire people, basically, to say mm-hmm. that because timeline based data is everywhere. Mm-hmm. So if they see that kind of example, heuristically, eventually, they kind of understand how to apply that kind of pattern in, in their own apps. Absolutely. In doing this course, did you find or discover any new uh, insights? I mean, you're all, things are always changing, but is there any sort of more timely stuff that that occurred to you while you were making the course? Yeah, yes, I did, Carl. And one of the areas that I kind of rethought was why people want to stick with what they've got. Mm-hmm. Why they're so adamant about, about resisting change and how you overcome that. So I came up with new ways of explaining. I, I, it's called in the design community status quo bias, that mm. people are just more comfortable with the things that they like. And it's long been my contention that you really do have to break free of the past in order to use technology effectively and do do good design. Mm. But I really rethought that entire area. And the examples that I use are different. And I talked about over and, and I realized that some of that stuff is really tied up with the kinds of things that make it difficult for especially a first-time use of, of UX design for a team to get through it. For example, conflict resolution. 
mm. is connected to this status quo bias. If you don't understand why people are connected to the past and why they won't, they're resistant to anything new, then you're going to have a hard time getting through some of the conflicts. Um, right. You start to you start to see some of the the turf protection. You see people who don't want to change because that would be infringing on their turf if things changed out from under them and they no longer had the control over how it was done than it did before. So I really thought a lot about the conflict resolution, the the, the problems, of the obstacles of getting through. And I actually have an entire module on that. At the end of the course, the last mo- major module of the course is here are some of the obstacles that you're probably going to run into when you try to do this. Let's talk about the psychology of the people involved, why they do it this way. And here are some tips and techniques to kind of bypass that. One of the critical ones being that and you, you guys have heard me talk about this on the show before about multiple design options that when mm. you've got a design problem, you try to come up with multiple approaches to solve it. Sure. That is, that's one of the key things to overcome status quo bias because when people start saying, well, you know, I think we really should do it this way. If you've committed to doing exploring multiple approaches, then all you have to say is, okay, we'll put that as one of the options, the traditional way of doing it. Mm, And now we really need to make sure that that is the best way. So let's design alternatives that we compare to it. Now, it sounds like a straight up brainstorming practice, right? Just like take every idea, give it equal weight, put it on the board, and then look at them as a whole. So you haven't Mm. said no to them. You haven't told them that you're going to take away that thing that they're attached to. You're just saying, well, we need to ensure that it really is the best thing. And you put the other options out there. And typically the user's input immediately, if you've hit the target on design, will immediately gravitate to this much better way of doing things. Mm. And they see for themselves that that much better way of doing things is what the users want. It's less risky. And especially if they've been involved in the design process, so there's some measure of buy-in, they start to lose their status quo bias. They start to not feel as threatened by the whole thing. Um, so, so I really rethought that area a lot and enough that I did an entire module in the course on it. Hmm. I also appreciate the idea that in the end, it was the user that arbitrated the decision. It wasn't the folks that were coming up with the ideas. That's true, but there are limits on that. The users sure. are not the absolute authorities because, I mean, some users have status quo bias too. If oh, well, you've totally. worked at a company for 20 years and you're the expert in all the stuff that's evolved, even if it's hard to use, oh, what do you care? You already know how to use it. In fact, it's kind of a, a barrier to anybody taking your place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, a, it's there are, incentive for your protecting your role. What was that? There's the right. Ford quote that turns out to not be true, but it's still a great quote. If I'd oh, asked the customer what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Right. Yeah, that's that's philosophically kind of aligned with this idea that if you ask users, well, first of all, they're not expert in imagining new ways of doing things. If they sure. ha- We talked about this earlier. If they haven't seen applications with a dramatically different way, right. then their unconscious assumption will be, well, if you make something that new, I won't like it. It's right. it's it it will break my work process or be something that goes wrong because in fact of course look we as developers don't do as good a job with reliability and such as we should and mm-hmm. we don't really understand users' jobs as well as we should so yeah. they assume for example one of the reasons they like crowded screens is they assume that if it's not on the screen they won't be able to find it right. when they need it yeah well so that's the argument is that sort of more screen mindset is now I just have to sort through more screens to find the thing I was looking for give me one screen with everything. That's it's right. A, it's so like if a you distrust don't match their, of the developer. That's their job. If you don't match their job and show them the stuff they need to see nicely visualized so it's really consumable by them, if you don't meet that expectation, then of course they're going to prefer the thing that, mm. that they had before. Yeah. And and the reliability thing is a big issue too. Look, I, we as an ecosystem never had great credibility on reliability. And I don't know about you guys, but it looks like it's getting worse over time. It is getting worse. I mean, in the software that I'm using anyway, we're certainly not in the golden age of software reliability. We may be in the rust age or plutonium <laughs> <Yeah>. age. <laughs> what's what's the most poisonous metal? The arsenic age. I, I mean, <laughs> I see that every month I see more bad stuff out there. And it's just it. And I'm talking about stuff from major companies. I, I was on Amazon last week and they that they sent me a mail message that said, basically, we screwed up. We 
put your private email that's on, that I only use for Amazon on the site by accident. See, I have a, I have an email that goes there that's kind of a, a general y Yahoo email. And then I have a private email that my family uses to get to Amazon. They expose that. Well, I kind of already knew something was wrong. I was already getting spam on it. Right. Huh. As soon as they exposed it. See, that was a security breach. Yeah. And that was a reliability problem. And here's the thing. Look, I'm sure that that mistake was made in a very agile fashion. And it was pushed out very quickly with continuous deployment. <laughs> Okay, ah, and so people deployed boo-boos. <laughs> yes, people talk about all these things like agile and continuous deployment as if there's some kind of panacea. And man, I think they have a big impact on quality. Mm -hmm. The open offices, for example, oh, it's supposed to enhance collaboration. No, I think it just distracts people, and so they make more mistakes. Right. So, and let's see. Well, there was another. Let me think. Oh, AT and T. I was on on them just last week. I went to to look at some tiered stuff for for my plan, and I'm going, man, it looks like there's more. There should be more on this page. Well, there was, but the page would not scroll. Hmm. Uh -oh. if, if I reduce the zoom factor, I could see the rest of the stuff down there. Okay, now how does how does that happen? Yeah, you right. have to explicitly take an action to stop a web page from scrolling. Yeah. What the hell? I mean, <laughs> who who? Who did that and why did they ever conceive it was that it was a good idea? But you know what? I bet that page passed all the unit tests that were thrown at it. Hmm. Because why would the unit test test for scrolling? Why would Amazon's unit test, how would it know that the, the wrong email was being used in the software? So I think there's a reliance on process and it's there's a real form of laziness that, you know, it passes all the unit tests. It must be ready to go out. There just is... Look, these, these large companies, small companies, everybody seems to be turning their users into involuntary beta testers. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I just think that's reprehensible. That's reprehensible. And it's really hurting our, our relationship with our clients, with, with our users, with the people that manage us, with the people that write the checks. Uh, it, it really bothers me. And I hope and I think that one of the outcomes of being a little bit more sensitive to user experience is you learn to appreciate the users better. And you want, look, if you've got a personal relationship with the users, you're a lot less likely to just, just, oh, well, let the users make the mistakes and tell us what's wrong. Right. You, they're people to you now. They're individuals to you now, not just a group to be abused. And I think that's one of the, one of the things that, that, that I'd like for developers to take out of a little more emphasis on, on UX design. Yeah, I appreciate that there's a whole psychology to this. Uh, it's I feel like this just ship it, we'll fix it later thing is because we've gotten so good at shipping software cheaply. When you had to burn a CD or a DVD each time you wanted to send out an update, you were really, really careful, but you also didn't send out very many updates. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, the economics of it. But then that's, that's really, to me, that's really false economy mm -hmm. in that we're just not going to do the testing at all because we can fix it later. Well, yeah, but you have to ask what the cost of that are. As far as the developers and the IT staff are concerned, well, if it's not our cost, they don't care. And businesses that kind of look at those guys as cost centers foster that attitude too. If you don't look at your software development organization as, as part of making your company competitive, then you're probably never going to land on, on the quality issue correctly. I mean, it strikes me that there's no substitute for professional testing in this respect, just because the regular consumer is trying to get something done and figuring out what's wrong with your software is not one of those things. Yeah. How are you on testing these days, Billy? I know that in the past you sort of uh, railed against over testing. Well, I, I don't rail against over testing in the sense that I think that prop appropriate investment in testing is, is, is a good thing. What I saw was that the, the ways people were investing in testing was, was not good. They depend too heavily on unit testing because they get used to it. Unit testing is good for stateless server based code. It's, it, that's the, the venue in which it was developed. It's actually very good for that. But designing good unit tests that work in a very stateful client environment, that, that's really, really hard. Hmm. And we have never found that that supplies the value that we want. We'd rather take that investment and put it into some kind of integration test tests. We'll do test beds and harnesses and things like that. So 
yeah, fine. Unit tests on, on the server for all of the data stuff that's going on. We think that's a pretty good idea, and we typically do that. But but we don't see that unit tests in the client, the native clients, give us the kinds of, of payback we'd like. They're not a – I mean, there are certainly parts of the client that we can unit test. Some of our data validation components, for example, are in a sense stateless. Hmm. You walk up to the component and say, is this good or not? Well, okay, we'll unit test stuff like that. But the interactive parts that the user actually works with, no, we don't write unit tests for that. Um, we, we, we have integration testing as a substitute for that. But also this aspect of developers responsible for their own testing. They wrote the code. They should make sure the code works. Do you subscribe to that strongly or do you think there's still a place for separate QA? Oh, I think there's definitely a place for separate QA. I, okay. I, I've known this since I wrote some of my first programs and thought they were working. And, and the manager that hired me to do this came along and broke that thing in 30 seconds. Okay. <laughs> that's just, that's just, and an, there's change blindness and some of the other psychological principles mean that developers simply overlook things. Right. That you, and, and they don't, and they don't think about how to use the software the same way the, that the user does. Mm -hmm. So no, we, we generally prefer some sort of quality control. It doesn't have to be exhaustive, but it, you need to, to run anything that's new through some measure of let's see if this actually works with either users or their proxies, people who are dedicated to some sort of actual hands-on testing. We don't see a substitute for that. And I think that given that our applications, when they are installed, the users feel they are at an acceptable level of quality. I think that the way we're doing it must be okay. And, you know, I'm not dogmatic about process, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm fine with anything that works. So if unit testing worked to give us reliable software, I would be much more enthusiastic about it. But the actual results are that we switched to Agile and we switched to these open office spaces and we started leaning really heavily on unit testing and the quality of our software has been decreasing ever since we did that. So outcomes are what matter and I just don't see the outcomes from those things. So I know we've been talking a lot about general principles and things, but when it comes to actual design process, uh, is there a is there a standard that you follow, like a uh, or a set of standards that you follow? Is there a, is there a timeline? Is there a recipe for for sitting down with the customer and figuring out how design is going to work? Well, that is an excellent topic for discussion because you have to achieve a nice balance. There are certain people that really like things to be pretty prescriptive. For example, David Platt has a fairly prescriptive design process that he goes through. I, I my, with my own skepticism about and uh, dogmatism over process, I tend not to be quite that way. But in fact, the process is so important that about half of the course, maybe a little bit more is dedicated to design process. But, but my approach to it is these are the steps you're going to have to take to make this work, how you take those steps. Well, there's various options you might try, but you're going to have to understand the business problem before you begin doing design. You're going to have to have some measure, some way, some method to understand the user psychology and what they need to do. Yeah. You're going to have to prioritize your design tasks so that you know what you're working on and what's most important. You're going to have to sketch out some ideas and you're going to have to have a way to evaluate those ideas. So that flow is common to almost all design mm -hmm. in, in software. But the way you carry out those steps, um, as I said, I'm outcomes-based. If, if you have a way of doing that that gets you good outcomes, then fine, do it that way. Now, we do have our own sort of way of doing things just as a as what we've worked out over time that seems to work well in, in our clients. So I do teach that when we go in, but I try to emphasize if some part of this, some part of the way we do this doesn't really match your business or your problem or your users, let's talk about that before we begin. Absolutely. And let's make some adjustments if we need to. And the uh, biggest problem I have when talking to customers is that they think they've got the whole software design like figured out in their heads already. And they don't, they're not, they're less willing to talk about the process and they, they more want to tell you like what technologies to use because, you know, everybody knows everything now, right? Well, that is, that is certainly a problem. And there's a little bit of turf protection there. I think sometimes there is a step in 
my recommended process, for example, called visioning. It happens after you've analyzed the problem, you've talked to the users, you've, you've sort of analyzed what you saw, and you've got these design tasks that if the design investment is big enough and the project is big enough, I like to just take an afternoon to brainstorm about the technologies that we're going to use, to blue sky things, to figure out whether or not there's something new that would really apply to this. And that step is in there precisely to stop what you talked about, that somebody's already got this preformed idea of the technologies they're going to use, and they're not willing to even consider other perhaps better possibilities. Right. But vision, but we typically only do that step in the smaller ones where it's kind of an addition to something that's already there. In that case, the technology constraints don't really allow us to do that. But if we're doing something new from scratch, yeah, we're gonna try to we're gonna try to take into account all the things that could be done instead of just blindly going down whatever path they've gone down before. I, I find my role a lot in these conversations is to steer it back to the process and get away from the implementation because that's where that's where people want to go, you know. They think they've already got it figured out. And so, you know, it's very easy to to jump out of um, the business model process and into a particular technology when you're talking about what you want to happen. Well, that's because that's where they see their value. That's why they think they were hired. Mm. They were hired to implement things. They were hired to code things. They were hired to, you know, get that get that stuff cut into a screen that you can see on the that the user can can see and, and do things with. And so they don't see their value as much in some of that earlier stuff. And as a consequence of the fact that they see it that way, they don't have experience there and they don't have as much confidence there. Right. People, people tend to avoid things that they don't really have any confidence that they can do. Mm. So developers in particular, I mean, I've joked about code addiction for, for however long yeah, yeah. because developers really, they really do like to write code and they really will blow off things to get back to writing code. But to be honest, some of that is not really addiction so much as it is. That's where my comfort level is. That's where I know I supply value. I don't know if I supply value to this design process. So I'm kind of afraid to do it. I don't want to look like a fool. And so that's kind of the psychology. Now, once somebody goes through a design process, one that's that's flexible enough and well-structured enough to produce some value, now they're fine. They're never going back. But during that first experience, yeah, you have to keep people on the path, so to speak, because they will wander right off the path. In fact, that's so bad that just this week I had to fire a client that mm, was doing exactly really? that. Wow. Yes. I, I, and we were in... I thought it was going to just be an absolute beautiful match, a software company that needs to sort of go to a, a new level of things. But, but it, you know, I explained it and I thought I got across and I guess it's my personal failing that I didn't because when we actually started getting down the details of, of planning things out, it was all micromanaged. We were just resources to be plugged in to stuff. And, and so I just completely... I missed the ball there. I, I'm, I, I messed up. I guess it's a subtle thing to trying to, to sort of peel that onion and realize. Oh, okay, your intent was very different than our intent here. It's glad you found it early. It could have been way worse. Yes, when things are that mismatched, the chance yeah. of failure is extremely high. It takes a lot of nerve just to stop and firing clients. Like a lot of people are like, money is money. I got to do the work. I, I don't care if I'm happy. Yeah, and. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I do have a little bit more flexibility there than the average consultant, but it broke my heart to do it. I, I, I really like those people. They have right. an interesting, challenging problem. And I saw it when I originally saw it. Oh man, we can, we can help these people so much. And, and so it broke my heart to, to do it, but. But they're not open to the help. They're just, you're just asking for a frustration. Yep. Yeah. Everybody's going to be unhappy. Yeah. So I hated that. I still like the people and I hope that they don't take it badly and, and that, you know, if I run into them at a conference or something, they'll, they'll be, they'll be okay with it. But yeah. What about dedicated UX people, Billy? You know, we, we've really been talking about developers getting into the design element, but when do you need a, a dedicated UX person or when does it make sense to, to recruit one or to contract one? Well, if you're large enough and particularly if you write software in packages that are, you know, deployed as a service or as a, as a package, then you reach a point where a dedicated UX person can be pretty helpful. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's the minority of companies. Um, that dedicated UX person, it's hard to find the person who can do that because if you, if you ever, if you advertise that position, you're going to get 2000 visual designers from the web who think they can do that work. Right. And 90, 90% of them cannot. 
Well, probably half of them could learn to do it if somebody would show them how to do it. But if they're in that position, they're supposed to already know. Yeah. And so that, that, so I, I really, actually, I have a thing in the course. There's a topic on when you need a professional designer and how to go about finding one without sort of messing up too much. And you certainly could, in a big enough effort, recruit somebody who primarily had that responsibility. The main thing to watch out for is somebody who says, okay, I'm just going to do the design and hand it over to the developers. Right. Do not, don't do that. Nobody's going to know enough to do good design without collaboration. Or, I don't know. I guess there may be a few genius designers out there who can. I can't do it. But it's a, that's true of software architecture or anything where you, you're taking an overview like that and then trying to implement it. If you don't stay in the process, then you, A, your design is never going to happen. And B, if whatever does come out of it, it's not going to be that good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, getting such a person as that, if you're big enough, I think is good. But boy, it's a challenge to recruit them and yep. find somebody who will work with your team. I think the best thing to do uh, when you, you're trying that is to, if you get somebody, to have them come in on some kind of a consulting basis or something right. to work with your team through one project and find out whether they're really going to fit. Hmm. That's a much better way to do it than just put up a position on monster.com and try to hire. Mm. Yeah. I also yeah. think, and I, listening to you, I'm thinking it feels like I would rather grow that internally the same way that you found, you know, one dev that just was really great at writing SQL and ended up, you know, living in that both worlds. They had mm -hmm. a dev mindset, but they were great with the data. If you have an emergent user experience person, who's also a dev, you're probably gonna have more success. Oh, in general, I think that is more common than, than people being able to hire into that position because one out of N developers, let's call it one out of 30 or 40 that I, that go through the process and I teach them the things, they feel a real affinity for it. Mm -hmm. They feel mm -hmm. some talent there and they enjoy doing that as much or more than coding. Then they slide into that position. So yes, I've had several clients do that. And the bigger your team is, the more lucky you are to, to find I, somebody I mean, we've like known each other long enough. I, wa I remember watching your transformation, Billy, because it was also reflected in how you took photographs mm -hmm. and how you, know, you were so – eventually you started looking at things differently. You talked about different things. Like it, it does seem transformative. It is. From a mental perspective, you become a different person when you really understand design. You become yeah. a more mindful person. You notice things that you didn't notice before. Right. Uh, and, and it's and about having those experiences that that are so much better and that you can actually say, oh, it, it, I can do that. Oh, well, yes. why wouldn't I do that every time? And you build as you build up a pool of ideas, things that you've seen that work well, then you can go into design meetings and just pop the ideas right out. Right. See, the, the people have this idea that if you can do that, if you can just stand up there and just pop ideas, you must be some sort of creative genius. Right. No, it just means that you've exposed yourself to a lot of ideas. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you, and you've actually looked at those ideas and understood why they were good. So cool. So taste can be learned? It, well, not everybody can learn it, but I'm thinking that the, the from my own experience, the majority of developers can travel some distance down that road. That's fair. I have a slide in the course that talks about what I'm trying to do is get you to just take the first step and it's kind of an elevation to, to a level. And then there are three or four more steps. And at the end, there's this really tall thing that is professional designer. Mm. Right. That, that I don't expect most people to watch that course. I almost feel like it's mythological. What the professional designer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but certainly it's steps and, and people, people get better at it and more comfortable at it over time. I also tend to stress that, uh, in my, in my courses, that if you're a developer, especially if you're in your 30s or 40s, and you're starting to get a little bit of fatigue from all of the constant technological change, well, the nice thing about learning some expertise in UX design is that the human brain and the visual system aren't going to change out from under you next right, month. Right, right, sure. So a lot of what you learn is going to be applicable as long as you're, you're working in software development. Yeah, yeah. Billy, this is it's always great talking to you. We always learn something, and, and it's just fun. Besides that, well, I, I, I hope that because I keep coming back to the same ideas, I hope people don't find them repetitive. I try to find different ways of thinking about it, and I do have new insights on, on occasion about it, just as I work with clients and I see something I've never seen before. So I always enjoy being here, and I can tell from the comments and from some of the emails I get that people do get something out of it, and, and, and that I'm really happy about that. So I'm always happy to do it. Us too. 
All right, Billy, we'll see you next time, and we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a-